Welcome to season two of On Site. As you all know by now, uh, we are going across the world and we're asking ourselves a little bit about what luxury markets mean in different places. The next global destination is a place that's actually near and dear to my heart because I have family, friends uh, who live in, in the country and it's one of the most magnificent countries in the world. It has one of my favorite cities in the world, a place I've visited many times, Sydney, Australia. And uh, today I'm really lucky to have as our special guest on on-site, Iwan Sunito. Now, Iwan is the CEO of Crown Group. Crown Group has built itself a reputation as really the global property innovative forward thinker and specifically in Australia and in that market. Um, they have been hotel developments, they've done retail, uh, residential, they have a very futuristic vision and are inspired by new ways of bringing different things to people um, across the world. Uh, the company was co-founded by Iwan Sunuto, who is an architect, and uh, his partner, who's an engineer, Paul Satio. Um, they started the company in Sydney in 1966. They've got more than a $5 billion pipeline over five cities and three continents. Iwan graduated from UNSW with a Bachelor of Architecture, Honors, uh, Master of Construction Management. He received the uh, UNSW Eric Daniels Award for Excellence in Residential Design in 1992. He was awarded Indonesia's Property and Bank Magazine Golden Leadership Award in 2013, uh, the Congress of Indonesian Diaspora Entrepreneur of the Award in 2013, and Regional Award at the 2013 Ersan Young Entrepreneur of the Year, and a 2015 Urban Task Force Property Person of the Year, and on and on and on. I mean, his achievements kind of speak for themselves, but his buildings actually say a lot more about the man. And uh, I'm really excited to chat with him about his view and vision of luxury real estate, residential real estate, and what the future holds. Iwan, uh, that was a mouthful for me, but thank you so much for joining me. If I missed anything out, please uh, let me know. But it's it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Sean. I think what you missed is probably I grew up in the jungle of Borneo. It's called Kalimantan. I grew up there on top of the a house on top of the river. So it was probably one of the most memorable 12 years of my journey in the early year and growing up there because my dad uh, was born there and, and I, I was born in Java, but then I grew up in Kalimantan and our house was um, virtually behind, um, behind us is a jungle, in front of us is the river and we commute by boat um, so much so. And the reason why I thought it was important is it actually has a lot of influence to what I'm doing today with all of this jungle, water, sounds of nature. But thank you so much, John, for being part of your amazing podcast here. Thank you. I, I, I love that story. When you were telling me where you're from, it just conjured up this image. And I, I read um, something a little bit about you that, uh, and tell me if this is folklore, if this is actually true, the house you grew up in was on stilts, Maybe that's what inspired you to kind of build high-rises as opposed to single-families um, residences. And there's a legend that says when the crocodile-infested river near your home would rise, it flooded your house. Yeah. And that's when you would go taking advantage of the high tides and you'd go swimming. Is that true? 
Yeah, well, we swim every day, but when we have fun, when the flood arising and uh, about a meter above our, our floor of the house. And of course, I mean, today, because you, you think that's actually really bad, but it was a time when we were just having fun. We were floating on the floaty along the river and we often um, hunt for the crocodile or the snakes in the river and we swim in the river knowing the danger that you could be taken by a loose crocodile somewhere and uh, it was just fun day of um, living and we used to jump off the ship the boat that dad um, builds up build his business from and and dive into the river and knowing that is actually quite a deep river and quite a strong current and Year from year, time to time, every year, there's always going to be someone who become unfortunate. Um, their feet got cramped, and they were the current that is quite strong. Often, just take them by the river, and they'll, they'll be found dead in the next few days after that. Really, and I was just floating somewhere, so it was a bit of a scary moment. And but I grew up with that. And the funny thing is, Sean, that one day, I think about five, six years ago, I took my wife back to Kalimantan to my hometown, and. Um, just a bit of reference is it's not far away from where the area Asia um, crashes, so um, about probably about uh, thirty minutes um, by boat there. But anyway, we crossed the river, and I, my wife was saying we, we were floating, uh, we were going into this. Um, it's almost like a canoe, but this time, unlike in the old day where we have to canoe with um, with the wooden um, row, and this time they all are using like um, the James Bond motor propeller. All it, <laughs> and it just goes so fast, and every time somebody else is crossing you, and the, the wave is just rippling, and you could almost know that if you just make the wrong move in that boat, the boat could actually tip over and everybody will f- um, go into the river. That's, so that's, my wife said, um, uh, is this dangerous? I said, no, it's not dangerous. I said, there's no more crocodile now. And uh, the guy, the boat guy was saying, oh, well, the other day somebody fell into the water and, taken, and was taken by the crocodile. And I said, oops. <laughs> <laughs> oops, sorry, honey. <laughs> sorry. Let's get a bigger boat. <laughs> That's an unbelievable story. Yeah. And it must have been pretty profound for you to go back and think of the young boy you were swimming in those waters and, and like where you came from and looking back and stopping and seeing what you've achieved and how far you've come. Did you ever imagine when you were that young swimming there, living there, that you'd be one day one of the top real estate developers in the world and own this company? And I mean, it's a pretty incredible story. Uh, there's no way that I could think about that possibility at all, that I would have been, I would have gone outside the village and to somewhere else. Because I was struggling in my, in my early day, in my school day, I was struggling almost every year. I barely made it till I, till one year I failed in my year eleven and didn't pass the class at all. Uh, but it was interesting that from that beginning was actually an embryo of a global connectivity because in that jungle of Kalimantan, my dad became a good friend of a, a timber tycoon company who come from Korea and they established their business there. In that little town also, um, Sean, what's unique is that there is a Canadian orangutan conserv- conservationist. By the name of um, Gladys, and she came. Uh, sorry, Birote, uh, B- Dr. Birote. She went there and dedicated her life to preserve and to rehabilitate orangutan in that town, in that village. And the government was giving them a a zone of land, and and it becomes the national park till today. It's called Tanjung Puting, and apparently Julia Robert actually went there too. Um, so are other famous people like uh, Tony Blair. 
it, what I think when I look back, it's actually interesting that from that one small village was a thinking of a global connectivity because uh, dad often dragged us to meeting with his friend from Malaysia, from Singapore, from Korea. And, you know, in the old day, right, there is no PlayStation. All we have is just, we just got to listen to them. There is no, nothing to read. I mean, we were listening to their conversation that is really boring because they talk about business and other things in life. But little that I knew that, you know, you get to know this and it becomes a seat in the future. When I go to Australia, I'm not foreign to mixing with people from different nations, different culture. But more importantly, the architecture, the, the jungle, the natures um, is just part of my upbringing. And it, it's something that makes Crown Group the, probably the one of the finest urban resort developer in the country, in Australia. But that's incredible. Um, there are so many things that I could unpack with, with what you've just told me. Um, but I think a great attribute that is a necessary requirement to be a successful developer is the ability to be able to take risk. And, I mean, clearly jumping in the water with crocodiles is, <laughs> is like <laughs> – that's a ri risky proposition. But, you know, also coming out of where you came from, going to – to Australia to study architecture, um, are, are you ever afraid of anything? I was always afraid of a lot of things. I was always insecure in the past, Sean, and I was always living in this belief or, or perception that I was not very good because every year that I always struggle and I always felt like, you know, you came from the small town of Kalimantan and you go into the big city like Surabaya and then you go to Sydney, that there's always you almost have to fight for that feeling of inferiority or, or somehow that rise up. And, and of course, little that we know that as you grow your business too, I mean, no matter how, how much you've grown in business, you always have to deal with that feeling of fear, insecurity in life. So yes, there, there's always that, that thinking there. But I think what makes it probably, what makes me stronger along the way was that I learned that failure is not final, is never final. Like it's not about, not not being afraid of failing because just thinking about that is almost like, you know, we're going to fail along the way. But I don't see that almost like failure. I see that as a step towards to where I need it to be to perfect myself. And over time, dealing with, hey, I didn't pass one year. It wasn't the end of the world. you know. But in Indonesia, I have to be honest, Sean, like if you fail, if you, you, you're one of the two students out of 150 students that didn't pass. <laughs> it is an embarrassment. It was just like, right. oh, everybody's going to talk about you. Right. And it was such a big fear, but I failed at And I had an accident in Bali that almost killed my life. And then I was put into a class of um, the best students. So it was like crazy things where this is crazy in a way that the, the worst students are being put into the class of the best students, like the top five students, including number one to five are in that class. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I also learned from there is that you do change because of your environment, because of your friendship. And and I get to know them and I realize of a different perspective that I used to see, where I used to think, look, you don't really have to do well in life or study well in life because after all, you know, there are many successful people out there who didn't really study well. But hey, um, now I, I, I mix with them and they see things being simple, they see things being easy, they appreciate what they learn. And I did well after that, really. And I did manage to finish that year being one of the top five students in that class. It was quite a, a big achievement, I thought. So when I overcome that 
and I overcome the setback in the life and learning that failure is never final, that you, all you do is just, just like climbing the mountain. You just climb it slowly and then sometimes you got to rest and not climb further up and you just got to rest and you just got to continue to go up again. So that kind of prepared me for every time that we launched job today. You know, like, I mean, as you, you can appreciate by the time you you have your entitlement, you have already invested a few million dollars. When you get ready for a launch of a project, it will cost you about a two or three million dollars and you may not be successful, by the way. You can fail in that launch and you can just burn two or three million dollars. It's like a today's startup company that invested a few million dollars and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always that fear. Yeah. Uh, but the experience of the past that have, it kind of told me that, hey, um, I will find a way to overcome things. Even mm-hmm. if it didn't work, I've learned something from there that I'm better off rather than not trying. Let's turn the clock forward a little bit um, and talk specifically about something. And I think you're alluding to here based on an experience you had. You know, we all know, I mean, you founded Crown in 1996 as a boutique firm. And because of your hard work, your creativity, your vision, also, you know, I'm sure you'll agree that some luck comes into play in real estate and timing and, but, but mostly, you know, hard work and a great work ethic and things are going well. You're building the company. And then in 2008, you have a billion dollars worth of apartments underwell, uh, underway. And um, the global financial crisis hits. It really rocks everyone, every mm. real estate developer in every market. I don't know anyone who came out unscathed by that. And then you came across a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that book and the impact it had with respect to your philosophy about the future of your business and a, a theory about what you'd be doing moving forward. That's actually an amazing uh, journey of discovery, Sean, because in 2004 to 2008, New South Wales, the state where we lived in and where the city of Sydney is, was going through a, a residential recession crisis. So before the global financial crisis, um, we already are experiencing the recession of residential market in Sydney. And one of the reasons was to do that Sydney has a, what, or Australia, we ha, uh, have this, what we call a two-speed economy. There are part of the country that are uh, relying on mining boom, mining resources. There are part of the country like New South Wales that do not have a lot of mining. So what often happened when there are mining uh, resources booming in the country that the government, um, in order to control the inflation, often raise the interest rates interest rates and property never really, it always works in opposite way, right? Higher interest rate means property price will come down. People are not are going to be cautious about buying. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened before that 2004, 2008. It was a, the most, probably the most difficult year. And you're right to say that, you know, for, from 2004 to 2008, we only have a billion dollar, we reach a billion dollar pipeline in after eight years of starting the business. But then after that, from 2004, 2008, the business didn't grow. It was probably the most difficult year, a difficult time of my business experience because you wake up in the morning with cold sweat, not knowing what to do because you can't launch a new project and you cannot pay interest and the job has stopped and the overhead of the business is still running and, and interest, you know, I mean, you can reduce your stuff, but you cannot not pay your interest at the bank, right? As we all know. But in 2008, um, uh, t- somewhere about 2004, 2008, a great friend of mine, the former chairman of Gruda Airlines, a great founder of one of the largest state bank in Indonesia, gave me a book because I get to become a friend to him. 
he became a mentor for me. He gave me this book, The Blue Ocean Tragedy by W. Chen Kim, your American writer, one of the best-selling books. In that book, essentially, it talks about the blue ocean market and it talks about the red ocean. The blue ocean is simply that you're on yourself and you create your own market and therefore your, your competitors are re- irrelevant. The red ocean is where every, most of the business are in that space, where everybody is cutting the the sales price, everybody's competing on price, and sooner or later, your income is much smaller or, or than your cost of production. In other words, that you're bleeding, so the ocean becomes red. In that book, we talk about a couple of, uh, the Blue Ocean Strategy book talks about some of the great, amazing um, stories of business. I mean, of course, unfortunately, like Cirque du Soleil, um, mm-hmm. what happened today, but it was one of those circus industry that are that rise up from a dying industry like a circus industry who who wants to go to circus again i mean besides who wants to pay a lot of money for that and animal right and all of this kind of thing and the rising of nintendo playstation and the like virtually means that it's a death of that entertainment industry there but uh guy lily burster from canada i mean um is the one who started that business and created this the human circus and of course as we know pre-covid 19 they, all, they have like 9,000 people watching them almost, um, I believe, daily, watching in a six, $700 million turnover per annum. It's an industry that was created out of an existing industry, but that managed to come out into the, a new industry that's called the Blue Ocean. So when I got that book, I actually got that book while I was struggling to sell one other project that I do um, in the city of Parramatta, which is the, about 30 minutes away from the city of Sydney, 20 minutes drive there. And while I was struggling to sell 245 condos that we have there, I was selling one unit per month. And I was selling it at about 20, 30% below what I want it to be. So therefore, you're actually selling it at cost price and you, you cannot make money out of it. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, look, how can I create a blue ocean positioning to this project that I have in Parramatta? But you've got to put it in context that in that time in Parramatta, or anywhere in Sydney, the only bias for high-rise building, high-density living, is mostly from Asia, mainly because they're used to it and Asia people do invest in property. But the local people who are not from Asian origin, like the Greek, Italian, the Lebanese, and the, the Irish and the like, the English, do not really want to buy condos because they want to buy block of land because they believe it's a house. And also we do have this great Australian dream about having a a thousand square meter of block of land. Um, so I thought to myself, how do I position it in such a way that makes it so different to the rest of the market, despite the fact that the area was actually underdeveloped around me, was not very well developed. But then I thought, you know what? Some of the finest five to six or seven star hotel resort in the world were often surrounded by places that are quite barren, are quite um, set back, are quite basic. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that I know that like Amman Hotel, for instance, um, would have bought or entered into an agreement with the surrounding neighborhood to preserve it, um, to make sure that they feel like um, they are old and, and they are kind of old and historical and they're basic, like timber flooring or, or just a dead road. And keeping it that barren, and I thought, look, and we knew that in part of the Asia world that you can see in the most amazing architecture surrounded by slums. 
And I realized that that time that there is power of architecture in creating and in changing people and in the behavior and people do move. And in fact, that the contrast between the raw and the beauty is important because if you put the most beautiful building next to the most beautiful building, it doesn't look amazing. But if you put a building, for instance, like Frank Gehry building in the middle of, um, of areas where everything around it, it's, it's quite basic it will stand out the most, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, look, what can I do? And I thought when I reflect back, and that, that's something that I've always been in dear to my heart is about creating urban resort. Um, and, and so therefore I thought, how can I create this? So what I did there, I start chopping off a few of the units and I convert them into library, common room. I started to create the journey, the garden, the space, the water and the, the pond and the gazebo and the pool. And guess what? In that job, after I struggle, selling it in the first five months, I managed to sell it and I doubled up my profit and managed to sell the project within four years from the start of the job. That was like, I said, and then from there on, I said, no, I'm not turning back. I'd rather be the only 300 of condos not competing against everybody else and the only one that everybody wants to buy because after all, there'll be people who will be looking for these products, but they could not find the one that they were looking for because nobody else is willing to take the risk to go to the next level to create something that they can afford. And then, not they can afford, they want to and can afford, but nobody is producing it for them. Right. Yeah, I mean, I have a saying, I mean, I think this is a great example of it. Just because it hasn't been built yet doesn't mean that it shouldn't be. You know, just because there isn't a comp and a market set doesn't mean that you can't create your own market and define the comp set. I think in that project, you created the what at the time was the highest water feature in the world, 22 meters in the air. Is that right? Yes. Uh, well, in 2013, we, cre- we started to design a building called Waterfall by Crown Group, and we're featuring a building which, is, um, which we launched about 2018 with the tallest water- man-made waterfall. Amazing. So your Blue Ocean opportunity and uh, it was really kind of creating these additional amenities and services and resources within the four walls of and beyond the four walls within the context of you know the surrounding neighborhood but kind of elevating the lifestyle for the people who would be living in the building is that correct i approach the blue ocean in three three things john number one is that my building has to be iconic as an architecture what does that mean what I mean by that, it has to be a building that people will say, wow, it has to fit in as an urban context. Most developer of apartments simply building box, right? Rarely that people are designing it to the level of design that you've seen around the world, like Bilke, for instance, building an apartment building that everybody wants to go and see the building. Mm-hmm. So it has to fit in. It has to be iconic. It has to be, no, it doesn't have to be different, but it has to be good because I, I, I don't really approach every design that we do to say, look, what makes it unique? Because I always believe that you don't have to be different to be good because when you're good, you're different. So I do not try to be good to what I'm not good at. I'm trying to be good to what I'm good at. So I I love a certain style of architecture. You could start similar language and architecture within my, my building. And so architecture from the urban context has to be super iconic. It has to be wow. It has to be a building where people just took their photo and Instagram the building, right? 
Because if it doesn't do that, I, I mean, you know, when people come to your building and say, oh, it's beautiful, but they don't take their photo, the camera, right? right? Yeah. Uh, and I could just say, oh, thanks so much, you know. But <laughs> but if they start taking their photo, it's like, wow. You know, it's always, we say, look, it's not about, well, you know, there's a book that says it's good to great, right? I said, no, it's not good. It's not good enough. It has to be wow. Right. If they don't say wow, that means that it's not great, you know. And second thing is that, um, I do want to create this um, sense of experience. Now, facility amenities and all of this thing is part of the feature of Crown Group. But they're more the tools for me to reach, to, to achieve what I'm trying to get to shown in my building. What I'm trying to create is the experience of space within the building. Most of the great architecture in the world that kind of gets better over time, a building that you experience from a distance, and you said, wow, and then you go through the space within the building, and everywhere you turn, there's always some intelligence, design, thinking, lights, sound, color, and view that you experience. It's not one-dimensional. And without a doubt that all of them will always, have, will always bring you through this horizontal experience, but also a vertical journey within the building. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I do bring them through the building and I turn them to the corner, to the right, to discover things. And then I take them, we take them to a height and to a different level of height within the building. And we bring them to the highest level. Now, I kind of felt like a lot of residential apartment development preserved the best of the best view for the, for the privilege. I don't believe in creating building that separates or segregates people within my building. I believe that everybody can have access to the best of the best within the building. So my approach is quite egalitarian in, in a way that just because I can only I only want to buy a one bedroom unit or studio for four or five hundred thousand dollars doesn't mean that I can't have access have access to the ten million dollar view. Mm-hmm. So but there's something about height that elevates the spirit of human being. Yes, it's costly because you do have to bring people up and you do have to create some uh, other things on the higher plane within your building that comes with cost of structure. However, you know, height lifts up the spirit of people. That's why we know that people say, look, I'm going up to the mountain to pray. I'm going to the high place to pray. There's something about height that kind of lifts up and you feel like, ah, I've arrived. Right. And these are things that I experienced through my journey of looking at architecture. I look at Aman Hotel in Yogyakarta, where you drove another two hours on top of the Borobudur Mountain. And then when you get there and looking down into the Borobudur, sorry, not mountain, Borobudur Temple, and then looking down into the, the city with this dust and the, and the sense of nature's, and it was just like breathtaking and spiritual. And that's the sort of space that I'm trying to get to, where I felt like my development has to be a place where I go in it and I do not want to go anywhere else because it's complete. If I don't achieve that, that means, we're, you know, you know, like um, we often travel and we go to a hotel. The next, thing, the next question we say is, where do we go next? Right. <laughs> well, uh, not if you're staying at the right hotel, right? Exactly. There is a hotel like I was, I stumbled into a hotel like when I was in Abu Dhabi. We, we stumbled into the hotel because the, the plane was overbooked. And they give us $600 a person. <laughs> there were about six or eight of us, including my team. I said, why don't we pick up the finest hotel, the Emirates? <laughs> and we right. just stay there. And for that whole day, we said, we're not going anywhere else. And I thought, that's a sort of architecture, an oasis, a sanctuary. Your Sangrila, a place that is cut off from the time and the world where you feel like you've arrived. There's nothing else better than this place here. If I don't achieve that, that means that my building is not there yet. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. And I, I agree a thousand percent. Shift gears a little bit on value. Last year, we saw the record for the most expensive residential home in Australia sold uh, for $140 million. That was a two-story penthouse in a high-rise building at one Sydney Harbour. And apparently, you know, legend has it, the buyer bought it off plan. And that was a break from tradition of what we've seen in the Australian market. You know, the record before that was a um, single-family home, you know, that was bought by Mike Cannon Brooks and uh, Point Piper Estate for $100 million. And then before that, it was $95 million. Um, mm. and, and those are all single-family, waterfront, beautiful mansions. But now we kind of see a different trend, potentially. Do, do you think this is a departure from value and, and do you think this is more of an opportunity where a lot more luxury buyers are going to be looking at high-rises um, to get some of the benefits that you're talking about here, things that you guys are creating with you know, iconic buildings, an incredible experience in the building, great views, being elevated? Um, what are your thoughts on that? That's actually fascinating, isn't it? Because I remember the highest price in Point Piper, waterfront residential, all the rich and in that area, everybody has to be in the order of somewhere about uh, 70 years old. Otherwise, you can't afford it. <laughs> kind of. And people are buying, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, the same property was worth about $10 million, right? Today, they're buying $100 million. And now you're starting to see people buying $100, $150 million. It's just actually quite fascinating to me, Sean. I mean, I think they're following the trend that's happening in New York, where $100 million, $150 million becomes just not that significant anymore. And the trend was more about, I don't really need a big a 5,000 square meter of block of land anymore, but I want access to all the amenities, the access to the convenience, the hospital, to the job. And I, I feel like the trend, is it's going to continue. But we also see that it's a trend that's happening across the whole market, not just about the, the top, top end market, because um, WHO was talking about that, the fact that today about 50 52% of the world population are living in the urban context in the city. So, um, and then they're project, projecting that in the, in 2050 that there'll be about 75% of the world population will live in cities. And that's really just a trend where luxury is now not about ownership sometimes, it's more about sharing. Luxury is about access, luxury is about co-working, co-sharing ideas, meeting with people. It is actually a fascinating things and and it is a market that can be explored and should be explored um i understand that in canada that they are running this with this slogan that it is a, it what they call the eco density living because it is ecologically more sustainable to build in cities because you got almost everything's infrastructures um, in that area but it's also economically more viable to build in cities because there are the markets, the buyers market are a lot wider, and besides, the government doesn't have to commit to build new road, new trains. Everything is in it, and and then it, from the ecological point of view, it, it does encourage a more ecological, sustainable city because the city becomes a more walkable city, right? In cities that are um, that are relying so much on transport. So you are bullish on cities. I mean, you think the paradigm shift we saw last year because of COVID is temporary. Um, I mean, across the United States 
and other parts of the world. You know, we saw cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, all of the major urban cities, people fleeing for the suburbs. They left for more space, for, you know, less community, right? Social distancing became not only a necessary medical life, it, it just it seemed to be more appealing to a lot of people. So you think that's a temporary thing, or do you think there are things that we learned from this pandemic that will take us into the future where we'll have to adjust the way we live, and as a developer, you'll have to adjust some of the things you build for these people? I, I'm bullish about city living um, because it's simply because it's being driven by the by the need of the people, Sean. I mean, if you think about Sydney and Los Angeles, where we're developing the new tower there, they are similar. The, the needs are for people to live. The needs are for students from all over the world that are coming to study, um, and they are big numbers in terms of the investment. The other, the third one is really the global investors that are driving also the property needs, right? And if you think about it, city still will have to be the biggest demand because um, its proximity to being able to meet with people in a short instant is an important thing. Um, being close to the big banks are important. Ma- major institutions are critical for us. The second one is really when you start th- thinking about where the students want to live in, in Sydney, the, one of the biggest drive of our buying power are students. It's not them, but their parents, right? The, um, we've got three universities that are within the city area. Most universities in, around the world are designed around the city. And you can't beat that numbers of demand there because in Australia, there's 500,000 students coming to the country every year. 200,000 of them are from China, for instance. I mean, if you think about 10%, 20,000 who is looking for a place to to buy or even rent. I mean, if you think about that, there's a massive demand yearly. The third one is really global investors. They do not understand to in, uh, places to invest other than places that they've been to. In other words, if they, ha- they haven't studied there, if they haven't really visited that place as a tourist, they wouldn't invest it. So you can try launching a project that is far away that, or, or a place that are um, amazing, but they, if they've never seen it, they will not invest on it. That's really our experience. Now, in, so I felt the city is going to be in, always going to be strong. The, in terms of design, um, the design's got to start changing because... Um, Lately, we have a lot more people who are saying, can I have a one-bedroom plus study? Mm-hmm. It was just interesting. It used to be, can I just have one bedroom? And they're then are asking the next thing is about, do you have facility outside the space? And the reason being is that we all know during the lockdown that mom and dad or husband and wife or kids have to do Zoom conference or study at home. And study room, a proper study room becomes important. But also that when you are locked down into the room or into a complex where you can't get out, facilities and space outside your living room is important too. And therefore, I feel like there will be a push towards more and more what we've done in the past where space, garden space, um, enough space to to make sure that we have this uh, distant um, uh, social distancing possible within the development is going to be the next need. The third one that I felt, Sean, that that's already been in discussion was more about there's so much stress that are being built up by not being able to move around, um, depression, um, stress. And therefore, people who are being locked down into their own unit and not being able to go outside within their own unit or condos within the complex um, are often struggling with that. So we thought that um, people got to start thinking about beyond sustainable building to a sustainable living 
creating building that inspires people, creating building that makes people happy, um, creating building that makes them feel like everything that they need is complete in that area in that building there. Um, I have um, I have someone Instagramming something the other day, uh, quite a, probably about probably about two years ago, Sean Wei. He said something like this: "I don't know why I keep going back to this Ark by Crown Group building in the city, but she she said that this building makes me happy, and I thought." That's interesting, isn't it, Sean, that there are buildings that makes us happy. There are buildings that cause us to be depressed. So, so then someone is asking the question, what is the price of happiness in a real estate? How do you put a price tag to a building that makes you happy? Is that $100,000? Because the thing that we all know, um, style got dated, right? Glitziness got dated. Materials got dated, becomes all. But buildings that are designed well, that has this amazing experience, it's never dated, you know, amazing buildings of the world. You keep coming back to them because you, it's just beautiful. Every time you walk there, you experience that space. Now, yes, the material gets ugly, but the space, I mean, if you think about some of the most amazing architecture that was designed by the late um, Australian architect, Kerry Hill, who designed all, if not most of Amman Hotel, all his space is just amazing. It's yeah. because that, and then the building is actually dated, the material dated, but the building becomes better over time because the space never changed. Yeah, it's uh, timeless. Timeless. I think that's that, that's yeah. right. No, I mean, I've always felt that, you know, and I've, I saw this when I was a real estate agent. You know, you kind of walk people into a space and mm. it's an irrational emotion. It's like falling in love. And I've always said, you know, mm -hmm. buying a piece of real estate is like one of the most irrational acts you can make. Like, what can quantify $140 million for an apartment? Clearly, there's got to be some emotional connection to falling in love with that. And um, yes. I think if you can tap into that as a developer and create homes that people can love and fall in love with, mm. then you've created value well beyond just the dollar amount that they're paying for the apartment. And I think that's a very strong responsibility that developers like you take on very seriously and um, it's great for the world that we have people like you who take this responsibility on to improve you know the experience in our daily lives and make it a much happier place and I know that sounds cheesy but it, it's really not it's you know you walk home mm. you, you close the door behind you and if you've got a smile in your face and your home can make you feel that way that's invaluable yes uh, wow, uh, so true, isn't it? Like yeah. waterfall by Crown Group with all this tunnel of bamboo that we created and they meandered the path and then they looked up to the sky and looking at the tallest man-made waterfall and then they go up to level six to see this infinity pool and they go up to the sky cinema on the highest floor and all of this is a sense of journey where people are happy with it. it, it what's, what's funny also, Sean, is that great design does not compete with great organization or great business in terms of profit, right? Because often people think that, well, gee, how much it's going to cost you to design, uh, to do all of these things. Now, there's no doubt that they're a bit more expensive than standard, right? But like anything like the green building, once you install it, once you put it, it's there. Instead of putting just any kind of trees into the development, put a really amazing landscaping design, mature tree instantly. Once you do it there, it's beautiful. You don't need to change it. In fact, that you don't want to change it at all. I did this when I was doing architecture. I did this study on social housing, and I realized that so much so it's the same as with us too, right? The question that was being propositioned was that 
if you had a, someone who convict, uh, who's got convicted and coming out from a slum area and you put them back into the same slum area, the chances they'll, they'll stay the same, right? Because it's the address, the stigma that comes with it. Where do you live? What's your address? And instantly they can't get a job. But you move these people into an area where, oh, where's your address? Oh, oh, wow, that's a new address, right? And then the, the built environment that they have around them changes their behavior. And before you know it, the same people with a different environment starting to change. I Absolutely. do I just believe that, you know, I had a, I put, sometimes I put antique, um, replica antiques into my building. Now, when you think about 240 condos with almost 500 residents, the, the chances that it would be stolen, right? Somebody's going to be nasty enough to pinch it. But what I realize is the power of great building is people become protective. People want to preserve it. And I could go back to the same place and the things are still there, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the sense of community that you've created and sense of belonging and pride definitely have an effect on, you know, your, your daily existence and the way you feel about yourself and, um, and it's elevating. What's interesting is in 2004, right, we were going through that recession in New South Wales and out of that desperation comes that blue ocean. But I remember that we were in this building in North Sydney where we rented about a space about 350 square meters or 3,500 square foot. And when we introduced the urban resort concept, this beautiful architecture that we, we did in the, in the city of Parramatta, when no one was building us a job of that scale, I could just remember that the next three years, we could not produce enough condos to sell, uh, to, to meet the demand and the place become jam-packed with people, and we have to move out to the city to take a, a 10,000 square foot of space simply because for the next three years, we were just experiencing super growth of our business during the time of crisis, which is to 2008. 2008 came, uh, we were a billion-dollar pipeline, and then we acquired a, a billion-dollar pipeline within that crisis time, and, and we were making so much profit out of the business that enables us to invest in to do better architecture. So it was interesting that creating an amazing building within reason produced greater result for the company financially. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I've always felt that it's riskier to be safe and take the safe route, and like it's that. safer to take risk. That's my uh, mantra. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, I I'll tell you, you know, starting as a small kid in the jungle of Indonesia in, in uh, East Kalimantan and swimming in crocodile infested rivers and, and living in a house on stilts. Um, you've come a long way and I'm, I'm sure this is just part of the beginning of your journey and I'm really looking forward to seeing what you bring to the luxury segment of the market in the future, um, especially in the United States. I know you're making a move here in California, as we said, and continue to grow your business in Australia. And uh, congratulations. I'm, I'm really excited to see what else you, you're going to be working on. And um, this was great. Is there, is there anything you want to add for our listeners, something that uh, you wanted to touch on or something you want to leave with? The next exciting thing for us is more about the downtown LA, Sean, about creating that building, what we call a sky tree. That'll be a dream come through. I do go to... Los Angeles, I mean, or America to learn. Um, in other words, that yes, we 
do believe that we have something to offer to the market there. But I do also believe that there's so much that we can learn and we can take back into the different part of the world that we're developing. But I'm looking forward to, to see a building that's kind of um, become an icon for the city of downtown LA and, um, and to work together and grow that, that pipeline into a major business in LA. Because essentially for us, is there are only three countries that we want to focus right now, Australia, Indonesia, and USA. These are the three, the three countries that we want to focus. Um, but thank you so much, John. I mean, um, a lot of people were asking me the question about why do you go into the market when there is problem there, like crisis are hitting, COVID-19, lockdown, uncertainty of time. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that, um, you know, life is like you set your goal and you map that how you're going to get there. And you're just going to have to find ways to get to your vision, to your goal through the storm and the wave or the storms of life and crisis and and makes you stronger and, and learn from that experience. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that those are wise words. And I think, you know, Los Angeles is ready for you. Uh, Los Angeles is, is in need of something like what you have to offer. I think it'll be a very symbiotic relationship. You know, I have to like, quote one of my favorite quotes i know which is one of your favorite quotes where you know the bill gates quote where he says uh, success is a lousy teacher it seduces smart people into thinking they can't lose mm. you know so you'll bring with you your wealth of experience in a very optimistically cautious way where you'll be a teacher as much as a learner and create something beautiful uh, in los angeles so i'm really looking forward to that i think i'll be a learner there and, <laughs> and <laughs> more than being me being a teacher there, I think I just want to learn as much as I can and explore the collaboration with everybody out there in LA in well, the US. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an exciting time. It's been a difficult time, yeah. but out of difficult times, you know, come brighter tomorrows, and I think it'll be very exciting. So, thank you, Sean. very excited. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's almost evening here for me. I know it's morning there for you. This was great. Enjoy your day. Be productive and healthy and. I look forward to catching up soon. You should, yes. See you then. All right, take care, Iwan. Thank you. 